This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. The remaining issue that I intend to talk about vis-a-vis abortion is the use of this issue by a group of people called the Consistently Pro-Life Movement. And if I hadn't run out of my office so quickly, I'd have grabbed, I would have grabbed a, a, a magazine that I have called Just Life, I guess it's printed this way, Just Life 88, and then there's, there was another issue of Just Life published in 1990. Let me tell you about the just, so-called Just Life movement or the consistently pro-life movement. It is the brainstorm of Ronald Sider, uh, and even though I have, even though our, there, there are some issues on which Sider and I agree, his participation in the consistently pro-life movement, I think, is uh, an example of an activity that deserves careful scrutiny and careful criticism. Let me tell you about this Just Life magazine, and maybe after the break I'll, I'll be uh, <clears throat> in touch with reality enough to grab a copy and bring it down and show you. It's a very slick uh, Madison Avenue-type magazine uh, in which uh, one will find uh, articles by rather famous, well-known Catholics and Protestants. For example, in the, in the Just Life issue for 1988, there was a major article written by Billy Graham, or more likely by Billy Graham's ghostwriter. Uh, the presence of an article in that copy of Just Life made it look as though Graham himself endorsed the very radical political agenda that Just Life um, endorses. In that same early issue, there were other articles by uh, the Roman Catholic Cardinal of Chicago, Cardinal Bernadine, by uh, Roberta Hestines, the president of Eastern Baptist College. And it seems to me, uh, my recollection is correct, there was an article in that first issue by Carl Henry's son, Paul Henry, who is a congressman from the Grand Rapids area of the state of Michigan. Uh, since, uh, since the publication of that first issue of Just Life, some of the people who participated in that early publication have uh, distanced themselves from it once they recognized the serious implications. Uh, and I will, I, will, I will zero in on the implications of that first issue for Paul Henry, Carl Henry's son, in a moment. The, argue, the basic argument for the Just Life movement is this, and I'll put it in the best of all possible terms, and then I'll tell you what Just Life is really about. The argument is that uh, the Christian concern with abortion is proper and justified. Christians should be pro-life 
when it comes to abortion. However the just life agenda continues, abortion is not the only instance in which Christian concern for life should be manifested. We should, uh, Christians who are only opposed to abortion are inconsistently pro-life. Because uh, at least they are inconsistently pro-life when their devotion to the cause of the unborn does not also carry over into an equal concern for such issues as the following. Capital punishment. All right. If you're consistently pro-life, you should not only support life when it comes to abortion, you should also be opposed to capital punishment. Now there we're getting into a, a different issue, all right? And I'll, I'll want to zero in on exactly what is important as far as the differences go. Moreover, the consistently pro-life agenda continues. We should also be concerned with militarism, pacifism, uh, and nuclear weapons. Now, of course, I don't know any sensible person who since 1945 has been advocating for additional atomic weapons to be exploded somewhere. But the point is uh, that these people uh, are quite anxious that Christian concern for the unborn also lead to also lead to a certain stance vis-a-vis -vis military action, even if it's just a just war, even if it's defensive in nature. But it gets even more interesting. If you're pro-life, consistently pro-life, you will support the welfare state. You will support liberal programs in connection with the welfare state. And you want to know what else you'll do? You'll support peace in Central America, which, is tra which translated means you will support the, the, the Marxist Sandinistas in Nicaragua and the Marxist uh, rebels in El Salvador. Very interesting how this is all done. Now, at the end of the first issue of Just Life, and remember, there were only there have only been two issues of this so far. I predict a third issue. I predict that sometime in the next couple of weeks, we will see a Just Life 92. I guarantee it. Okay. At the end of the first issue, there was a biblical scorecard got giving Christians guidance as to how they should vote for senators and members of the House of Representatives. There were three major areas identified and then five major test votes under each of those three issues. One issues one, two, and three. And then under each of these, there were five test votes. And then, in this biblical scorecard, the specific vote of each, each member of the U.S. Senate and House was identified. It would then be possible, you see, to identify those members of Congress who best matched 
the consistently pro-life agenda and hence committed politically responsible Christians would then know who to vote for. Now, one whole block of these key congressional votes dealt with abortion, the right to life. And on this issue, the Just Life program correctly made it possible to correctly identify those people uh, who, whose status in the Congress we should support. It was relatively easy to, in other words, a, um, a yes vote on these five issues would clearly identify someone whose um, continuing status in the House or the Senate should be supported by uh, pro-life Christians. The second set of issues, however, and there were five test votes here, all dealt with the liberal stance on military issues. And knowing Ron Sider, would it come as surprising news to any of you that his group singled out five very picky issues that, uh, in other words, um, largely amendments to major uh, <clears throat> to major um, legislation, and all of these amendments came from liberal members of Congress. They came from people like Alan Cranston of California, or um, uh, other, or Teddy Kennedy, for example. So that a proper vote on the military questions would be votes that would uh, clearly weaken the ability of the United States to defend our country against uh, people like Saddam Hussein, they, these, would vo these were votes which in 1988 weakened our stance vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the communist threat from the Soviet Union. These were issues that weakened uh, democracy in Central America. These votes were votes to support the communist rebels in El Salvador, uh, votes that would weaken our ability to defend ourselves or defend democracy around the world, okay? Now, the third set of issues all supported the liberal welfare state. Again, these were uh, either legislative acts or amendments to legislation that came from the most liberal people in the Congress and the Senate. Again, people like Kennedy or Cranston or whomever. Now, what we've learned about the welfare state, and of course those of you who've been paying attention in this course, I trust, have learned this information, is that these particular votes and this particular legislation, in fact, identified the enemies of the poor. If we have learned anything about the welfare state since 1965, it is that the kinds of legislation identified here is legislation that is harmful to the poor. It does not help the poor, it harms them. Now here is the great irony. All of the major liberals in Congress, of course, ended up with zeros on the abortion issues. All right? That is Ted Kennedy invariably voted incorrectly 
on, uh, on the abortion issues, as did Cranston and the other liberals in the House and the Senate. But when it came to these liberal-inspired uh, votes on the military or on freedom or democracy in Central America, the liberals all voted 100% as supported by the Just Life people. And needless to say, any liberal in Congress would have voted for all of the liberal legislation with regard to the welfare state. Now here is the consequence of this, all right? At the end of the Just 88 magazine, a, a composite score or profile was given for every member of the Senate and every member of the House of Representatives. And that meant that even though the Cranstons and uh, the Kennedys in Congress are the enemies of the unborn, they invariably ended up with a composite score of 67%. Now, let's take the pro-life people in Congress. Let's take Congressman Henry Hyde of Illinois. Henry Hyde would have voted in the right way on all of these abortion issues. But because, in Henry Hyde's view, these other issues are much more complex, much more ambiguous from a Christian point of view, from a moral point of view, his score on these other issues would have been zero. That meant that pro-life congressmen like Henry Hyde of Illinois would only score 33%. And what is perhaps the greatest embarrassment of the first issue, and I don't have the precise score here, Paul Henry, Carl Henry's son, <laughs> who contributed an article to this magazine, I think he only got 10% on one of these other issues. Uh, Paul Henry ended up with less than 50%. Which meant, and can you, you can imagine Paul Henry's dismay when he opens Pro-Life 88, or Just Life 88, and he realizes that the end result of this magazine is to encourage Christians to vote against him. <laughs> See? He's contributed an article to this magazine, and the purpose of the magazine is to defeat him from re-election to the Congress. It didn't take long for careful appraisers of just life to go public with their complaints and with their analysis. They said, and they're right, the end result of the just life political agenda would be to elect 100% uh, members of uh, the House and Senate who are ant who are a pro-abortion and who are also supportive of a full-range liberal political agenda. If the Just Life political program were to succeed, we would end up with a Congress in which every member of Congress held the liberal political views and the liberal anti-life views of a, of a Ted Kennedy or an Alan Cranston. 
Obviously, that unmasked the real agenda of the, the so-called Just Life people. I am coming out with a book this fall. I trust my editor doesn't uh, ameliorate my language, in which I argue that there's nothing consistently pro-life about the consistently pro-life program. The people who are involved with the so-called consistently life program are in fact people who are willing to sacrifice the cause of the unborn so long as the rest of their liberal political agenda gets, gets put into place. These are people who talk about the life of the unborn, who talk, ab who talk against abortion, but who act, who when they act, support people for uh, election to the House and the Senate who will vote in favor of expanded abortion rights. Just prior to the 1988 presidential election, I had what was billed as a debate between Ron Sider and myself at Houghton College. It was less a debate, I guess, than simply uh, an honest and friendly give, give and take. But before we went up on the platform, I said to Sider, and I knew the answer, here is this great advocate of just life or the consistently pro-life position. I said to Sider, who are you going to vote for in the presidential election? And I knew what his answer would be. He said, Ron, I have no choice. I, ha I have no choice. I have to vote. I have to vote for Michael Dukakis. Here is this self-proclaimed advocate of the unborn admitting that he has to vote for the most pro-abortion person who has ever run for the presidency in the history of this country. Now there is clearly a screw loose somewhere. How can you profess to be pro-life, to be opposed to abortion, and yet consistently offer yourself in the service of pro-abortion political candidates? The only answer to that is this. Their real commitment is to the rest of the liberal agenda. And they are willing to let the, the rights of the unborn go down the tubes so long as it results in support for the rest of their left-wing uh, program. If it means supporting the, the Marxist Sandinistas in Nicaragua, and, and you have a choice between the rights of the unborn and those, those communists, you go with the Sandinistas. If, if it concerns um, some issue about military defense or the liberal welfare state, you willingly relinquish the rights of the unborn in order to support that left-wing agenda. So my point is this. The, the Just Life publications are out there the Just Life 88 and the Just Life 90, and it'll be interesting to see what happens in the case of Just Life 92. A study of the Just Life magazine makes it clear where these people really stand, and they do not stand on the side of the unborn. 
They are really enemies of the unborn, and I have to regard all of the rest as simply uh, sheer rhetoric. Now, I will say this. Sider and his people were noticeably uncomfortable about the blatant bias in the 1988 publication. It is interesting to study carefully the biblical scorecard at the end of, the, of Just Life 90, where they, did, uh, they tried to, to do a much better job covering over their prejudice. In fact, they tried to do a much better job helping people like Paul Henry out. I think, I think uh, because they selected the issues a little more carefully, Paul Henry got a little over 50%. Not enough. Uh, not enough to win re-election if, if Christians, uh, in fact, voted on the basis of the Just Life scorecard. Uh, they're going to have to do an even better job in 1992 if they're going to succeed in, um, in clarifying this issue. Of course, um, it is possible that we may not see a Just Life 92 uh, right away because so many members of the House and the Senate are deciding not, not, to, uh, not to run for re-election. Bring it in. Should we evaluate candidates for public life solely on the one issue of abortion, or should we look at a wider range of issues? And when you talk about a candidate waiting in the wings who is pro-abortion, who has the wrong position when it comes to the unborn, but who has uh, artfully persuaded a number of people that he supports a balanced budget and lots of other things, uh, should we not go with that, 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 that particular candidate? Would there ever come a time when a political candidate would be against the rights of the unborn, uh, whose positions on other issues would command enough respect for us to support, support him in the election? Um, let, me, let me offer a suggestion as to why I think not, okay? I think what is clear is that the position that politicians publicly take with regard to the pro-life movement is a calculated move to gain the support of the political left. But when these people are in the Democratic Party and they want a serious chance at election uh, running as a Democratic candidate, they have to cater. They have to renounce their previous position. They suddenly undergo a conversion. Now, that doesn't just speak to their short-sightedness short on this particular issue. It also speaks to their willingness to compromise their convictions with regard to the most... Um, uh, innocent and defenseless human beings on this planet. And once you make that surrender in order to cater the support from the left, the loony left, the yahoos on the left, I think it shows a serious lack of dependability on these other issues. I, I concede the logical possibility that a candidate could prove himself wrong on this one issue 
and right on the other issues. But where does the evidence exist that points to such a candidate? Uh, the left is such a lockstep position that in order, to, in order to pacify the yahoos on the left when it comes to the abortion issue, you've also got to pacify them on all of these other issues. You've got to be against family choice when it comes to education. You've got to be towards a weakened military posture. You've got to support the welfare state. Um, so even though it is logically possible that political candidates could come along and, and fail this one litmus test and in fact pass the others, that particular individual does, has no prayer of a chance of getting uh, the Democratic nomination and neither would he have a prayer of a chance of getting the Republican nomination. It is logically possible, theoretically possible, for a candidate to, to pass the abortion issue, fail the abortion issue, and pass the other issues. But it isn't likely, given the fact that these, the people who want the Democratic nomination have to pass all of these other litmus tests. What is the role for pastors and other church leaders to help Christians decide on political issues. Well, I'll tell you where I stood on that for years. I always felt the church should stay out of that business. And even today, I think it is... Uh, a, a Christian leader should think twice or three times before he actually gets in and mentions names. Uh, nonetheless, uh, uh, the difference between the parties and the differences on issues among the candidates has become so great and it is so easy I think to identify where our sentiments and where our convictions ought to rest vis-a-vis -vis this candidate or that candidate that um, I think it it is unthinkable that biblical Christians keep their convictions to themselves in, in a day that is so fraught with peril as ours today. Uh, I, think, I think it's unthinkable that Christian leaders would not offer their people some guidance. Uh, I, I, my guess is if I were back in the pastorate, I would not... I would not mention the words Democratic or Republican, but I would, I would offer an occasional observation about key issues of the day, and I would mention where the political candidates stand. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.